sleeping on ice with a hot Nalgene in a, you know, below 30, below 40 sleeping bag. And like, you will sleep like a baby. And honestly, I haven't slept that well since. Outside of all the craziness that is happening in Afghanistan and in our world currently, we hope that you enjoyed today's episode. This one is definitely an uplifting and a motivational one. Today we are joined with Sophie Hilaire, who served in the army and deployed to Afghanistan in 2012. To say this woman has lived an eventful life in such a short amount of time would be an understatement. From climbing Mount Everest and some of the world's tallest peaks, to setting a Guinness Book world record, and now living in a van and traveling the country, these are just a few of the crazy topics we discussed today with Sophie. Full of wisdom and humility, we hope that not only our veteran listeners, but our civilian brothers and sisters receive an incredible message from this episode to carry forth in our personal lives, especially in hard times. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Sophie, what's going on? How are you? Hello, I'm doing great. How are you? We're doing awesome. And thank you again for hopping on our podcast. I know it's been a while. We've been dying to have you on. Uh, obviously, all of our <laughs> schedules haven't lined up perfectly. And I know you've been traveling all over. So just thank you for taking the time to be on for tonight. Oh, absolutely. Totally honored. So thanks for having me. Yeah. So where are you right now in the world? I pretty much have started every conversation with this have you? <laughs> last year and a half. It's funny. <laughs> every work, every Zoom call, it's always this. Um, so today I am in Missoula, Montana, and really? I've been here for quite a bit. I, mm. um, yeah, I need to get a little work on my van done. And I was like, okay, where do I want to, like, what's an actual town where I could hang out for a bit and kind of enjoy it? And this has been amazing. I mean, Missoula is so cool. Last night, I even walked to go get some ramen and I ended up at this like Roots Music Festival that was like free outdoors, really good live music. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm really and like five minutes ago, I was looking at a river. I'm like downtown. So it's it's awesome here. <laughs> I forget where it's at. So my family lives there and my aunt owns a bar there in town that was featured on the show what? Yellowstone. And uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. So the show Yellowstone, if you've seen it, it's like I think it's one of the bars, the the bar scene where the bull got loose and ran through the bar. Um, and I'm spacing on the name, what? but I want to say it's something like whiskey or Roadrunner. I could be totally way off. But yeah, I heard from my family that lives in Helena and then they have other family that live there in Missoula that was telling me about it. So you're like right where I was last year and where my family's at. Wow. Well, send me the name of the bar later. I'd love to. I mean, I don't drink, but I'll go have a. Uh, sparkling water there <laughs> and check it out i haven't seen the show i honestly watch like no tv but sounds cool i will totally find out but uh, to get started i, I want to hear more about your journey into your military career and and what got you into that like what made you walk that door of the recruiter's office and decide to enlist <laughs> yeah um so so i did not technically enlist um i entered Commission. the army Commission. as an as an officer <laughs> my bad and there's no it's all good it's all good um yeah, I, I mean, if I had enlisted, I'd been way more hardcore. So I don't want people to think I'm <laughs> misrepresenting myself. Um, no, so I went as an officer. There's three ways to do that. You can, you know, go to ROTC at a normal college, have a bunch of fun. You could do officer candidate school and like come into the army with some like actual experience as an officer, or 
you can go to West Point. And so that's what I did was I went to West Point, which is a four year college with um, uniforms, a million rules. A lot of people um, call it a prison, <laughs> but I was probably one of very few or maybe the only person in my class, uh, new cadets anyway, who who really saw West Point as freedom because mm. I, mm. I went there wanting to change everything about the life that I'd come from. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So for me, my entry into the military was, well, this goes a bit deeper. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll I have a little preamble that I, sh that I definitely want to say first, which is, um, I really love my family and I have nothing but compassion for them. Mm -hmm. And I think all parents are always doing the best they can with the cards that they were all dealt, um, and their own capacity to grow beyond that. And, you know, I also recently learned we might carry all the way back to like 13 generations of epigenetics in our DNA. So mm. we're all like mm. holding the trauma in our body of all our ancestors that we don't even know their names anymore. We don't know the stories, but it's all in there. And I think, you know, these lineage is always doomed to repeat itself if, if someone doesn't heal it and break a toxic cycle. Yeah. So if everyone's just, you know, keeping secrets and no one ever does the work um, to heal, those things will stay buried and they keep on popping up generation after generation. And this is really not just my family. I really think this is everyone's family to different degrees. So um, and some people are just so traumatized after being raised by other deeply traumatized people that they get stunted and mm -hmm. like they can't grow. And then their their minds are literally blocked and you can't get mad at these people. You know, I used to think, well, gosh, an adult should always know what to do. They should always do the right mm -hmm. thing. But some adults are still five years old in yeah. their brains. And all the pain we see in the world from like people's unresolved trauma, it's like why people act out, why we have bullies, why people criticize. And at this point, I've done years of therapy and read a gazillion books on why things played out in my childhood the way that they did. So to really deeply accept and understand all that, my story, you know, even in the context of my own family is unique. Um, I was assigned a very specific role, the scapegoat, um, probably because I'm the oldest. Um, there's this Carl Jung quote that one of my friends told me that like, nothing has a stronger influence psychologically on a child than the unlived life of the parent. Mm -hmm. And okay, so preamble, preamble complete. So okay, why I went into the army, that, that's pretty crazy. Um, you know, though, I felt like, like what you were touching on, like when you really think about it, yeah. how we have our ancestors that we have to carry on from after. And just even hearing, you know, the quote that you just said, it, it's I think a lot of people don't think about it that much. And it is kind of crazy. Like when you look at others and you're like, why doesn't a person just act like an adult? Mm -hmm. And why don't they think like me? And it's, it's a very interesting point that you made. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, for me in my childhood, um, I just kind of felt like a lot of unresolved hopes and dreams for, for someone else got projected onto me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up on the receiving end of a lot of resentment and some very, some very savage violence. Um, like my first recollection of this, I, I think I might've been in preschool or maybe a little bit before that. Uh, I lived in Ohio at the time and I was sent out in a snowstorm naked for something as a punishment. And I don't what? even know why I'm sure it doesn't even matter, but, um, and I was locked out of the house. So I don't know how long I was out there. Jeez. I just remember my feet were in, like buried in the snow and it was absolutely freezing and I had no idea how to get warm. Mm. And 
you know, it was just like a very helpless situation. Um, cause I felt, you know, the person who probably I should have been running to for help was the one who locked me out in the first place. Yeah. So, um, I've always had this strong intuition, even as a child. And, and it, it told me like, Hey, you kind of don't have a choice right now because things are going to be worse if you go tell a neighbor. Mm-hmm. So I had this realization then that someone else like controlled me and I was not safe and that never went away. So as I got older, things just escalated so far beyond that. And I'm not here to get into a bunch of stories, but I mean, I will say that other people's parents were calling child protective services. I don't know who, who, but of course I was the one getting blamed for it, but I get, I'll just leave it at this. The chainsaw came out more than once and it was just a living nightmare for me. And as a reaction to that, this rebel finally rose out, you know, inside me because Mm -hmm. I just knew all these years of me being told that I deserve this treatment in the family. It just didn't make any sense. Like something wasn't right. And as a, as a reaction to all that, I certainly ran the gamut of all the rebellious activities a high schooler is going to go do to go find some outlet, some moment of joy, some temporary relief or freedom from this hell that like I felt I had no control over. So, I mean, it was nothing. It was all like pretty normal stuff for what a high schooler is going to experiment with in my high school. But yeah, but I really left no stone mm-hmm. unturned. Yeah, totally. It's, um, that's interesting. So I'm wondering, and, and I'm sure you'll get into it, but from what it sounds like by you going to West Point, that was kind of your escape. And it was much more of a positive release for you as to where some people, like you said, think of it as a prison compared to maybe their upbringing prior. Oh, totally. So I went to West Point as a rebel. Like I wanted to rewrite (laughs) my story as something positive after I felt so controlled and helpless as a kid. And I wanted to like make one decision at 18 and knew that like I'm immediately financially independent Um, I have no more decisions to make for another nine years and it's going to be, you know, a a successful nine years. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be defending our country, finally feel like I can protect myself. I mean, this was a few years after 9-11. That's no coincidence either. It just made me feel even more like this is really important thing to go do a very meaningful time to serve and uh, just change the story of my life. And, and, uh, you know, I haven't been afraid of anything since I left that house at 18. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't afraid of war violence. I mean, I was probably kind of drawn to it because it was familiar. And Mm. I, yeah, I'm not the first troubled kid to seek refuge in the military. One of my infantry friends actually told me once that this stat, I mean, I haven't checked this, but he said 90% of people in the infantry have either been, um, had violence in their youth or viewed violence as a way to solve problems. So yeah, that's why I went to West Point. (laughs) Total black sheep. I was like coming from this all girls Catholic high school. And now I found myself in this weird little fraternity. Jeez, how? What, so you went from an all-girl Catholic high school? Is that what she said? Yeah. So what was that? Because yep. because people envision like an all-girls Catholic school, even being very regimented and mm-hmm. being very strict and wearing a uniform and things like that. So how does that differ? I guess from going from Catholic school to to West Point. That's actually a good point. I never thought of that. Um, I mean, I was wearing a uniform. It was a very different <laughs> uniform. But um, I think, you know, my school actually, they really celebrate me going to West Point now. But at the time, um, they they weren't really all about it. They had mm-hmm. had um, a situation at the School of the Americas in South America where a nun from 
um, our school had gone there and had died in this attack and Mm. something connected with the military. And, um, and just because of that, like they did not, you know, really encourage, you know, they were like, if you want to go to an all women's college, we'll get you set up. You want to go to historically black college, we'll make that, you know, help make those introductions. You want to do all these things, but it was like, I'm like, okay, I want to go in the military. They were like, what? Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so um, but I mean, I will say they're they're very supportive about it now. And I think there's even a few other women who since then have gone to different service academies, but it wasn't a very popular thing. Well, that's such a, a cool thing to do too to like break down somebody's preconceived notions, though, and like mm-hmm. have somebody, mm-hmm. you know, you're told not to do something, you go do it. And then you're like, see, they're not all bad or they're not all one way that you envision or think. And uh, I think that's mm-hmm. why, you know, telling each of these stories, like in the podcast, the book, all that kind of stuff is so important is because it Mm -hmm. definitely breaks down those barriers of stereotypes and of what you think of somebody until you actually meet them Mm -hmm. and talk to them. Totally. Totally. Were you, were you the, uh, the rebel troublemaker, the, uh, the Catholic school girl, (laughs) like selling cigarettes to other girls? (laughs) (laughs) I definitely got suspended more than once. (laughs) Um, no, I'm, I'm the rebel everywhere I go. I don't know. I'm trying to channel it in more positive ways. But there's and trying to stop rebelling against myself, for God's sake. But, um, but yeah, no, I wasn't like, <laughs> I got good. I've always got good grades, but like, there was always this edge to me. And um, yeah, no, I, I was having some fun. But it's interesting. But they still, you know, I have a good, I have a good relationship with that school. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because you see a lot of it in the movies and I think people are, you know, realizing it more, but I feel like a lot of kids that go to private schools or like the Christian schools or the Catholic schools, you know, and their life is so in order and you know, you have to do this. Those are like the kids that rebel the most. Like if they then go to a public school or they just graduate after those private schools and go into the real world, it's almost like they've been under control for so long. that They just want to go out and do like, twice as worse as the next person it's like the west pointers at bullock too which doesn't exist anymore but like when those three groups of officers i mentioned at the beginning mm-hmm. it's just like you said like the rotsy kids who got to party the whole time in normal college the ocs you know who've been drinking in the military having fun then you got these west pointers who have been in their prison like very strict rules about drinking and then they just go crazy this first training where they lump us all together, you know, after we all graduate and we're getting ready to go train together. And it's like, that's totally the stereotype of the West Pointers that they're always just like going nuts because they've just been these caged dogs for so long. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw firsthand in the town that Dan and I uh, mostly grew up together in, there was a Christian school and there was, I remember like kids were like ODing on drugs. There was, there was a kid that burned down like three or four like school portables at the Christian school. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, I didn't do that. <laughs> like literally dump gasoline and like lit them on fire. And I was like, dude, these kids are hardcore. <laughs> wow. We should just go to Burning Man or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so once you, uh, obviously West Point's difficult and there's different progressions and things like that. I don't know if you want to touch on that at all, but once you... Once you did leave West Point, what uh, did you kind of know what you wanted to do, do? What branch you wanted to be part of, or like, um, not branch, sorry, what uh, like what unit you wanted to be attached yeah. to? What job MOS you wanted to be working with? Yeah. Um, so 
at West Point, the way they do it is your senior year, um, your class rank is really important because that's what kind of determines what your branch and your mm -hmm. post are. And um, it's, yeah, so your class rank is not just your academics. That's like 55%. And then I think it's like 30 military, um, which is like your summer trainings and like your made up job during the school year. And then, mm -hmm. um, and then there's a little bit left over for physical fitness. And um, so all that, you know, that ends up being whatever number you get out of that, like your whole order of merit list with the rest of your class. Um, the first person in your class of roughly a thousand is going to get obviously their first choice of, you know, your class is going to say like, okay, we have this many infantry spots. We got this many ordnance, quartermaster, whatever. And then once you're within your branch, the next semester, they know, okay, within this branch, we have this many slots for this, po this, this many people can go to Hawaii, this many people are going to Fort Polk, et cetera. Oh, wow. So um, my class rank was like smack in the middle. I was like 500. And um, my academics were like, I don't know, probably a little bit above average. My military score was like the worst. I probably had like a D average because I, you know, just rebellious, getting in trouble all the time. And then, uh, but my physical score was like top of my class, but it wasn't helping me at all because that was worth next to nothing. Mm. So um, all of that just kind of averaged out to like, okay, I'm at the middle of my class. And back then, like so many branches were not available to women and mm -hmm. I wanted to be hardcore. And uh, so everything I put at the top of my list for a branch was like all these combat arms things that, um, that my, I like just barely missed because of my class rank. So I ended up getting fourth branch ordinance, which um, I was actually kind of, stoked about because my um regimental commander oh my gosh i'm forgetting all these words uh, anyway my my tack my regimental tack that's what it was she was ordinance and she was like one of the first class of women at west point and she was one of she like really took me under her wing and just saw me getting in all this trouble and was like okay like we got to help you out and she she was like an amazing mentor to me so I thought, okay, well, if she's ordinance and I, you know, love her, then maybe this won't be so bad. Um, so yeah, I branched ordinance and then I posted Germany, which was, I was really excited about. Mm -hmm. But then I went to a school and ended up forfeiting the slot because I, I prioritized the school. And then I ended up getting sent to Fort Jackson, which was not my the post I wanted to be in South Carolina. And mm. I mean, there's great mm. things about South Carolina, but like, it, it, you know, that's like a not that spot. That's like a place where you, <laughs> yeah, you, well, you just don't deploy out of there. That's yeah. not what it's for. And so mm. I just was thinking, oh gosh, you know, I graduated West Point in '09. My whole class, like half your class, is like gone within a year overseas, and here I am, like dinking around um, in Tradoc. So um, I actually was really. Uh, I totally lucked out because, um, you know, there was a very rare opportunity on that post where if you volunteered to uh, deploy, you could get the, the likelihood of you getting put on one of these provincial reconstruction teams was really high. Mm. And um, that was like one of my dream assignments, like ordinance, uh -huh. you know, munitions and bombs and all that, like, cool, whatever. But like I wanted to go do humanitarian work. So mm -hmm. that's what these, um, that's what these teams were doing. And you would be working with like USAID and like the UN and all this stuff. And so I, I got really excited about that. So I actually, just because I was at Fort Jackson, I was able to join one of those teams. So it all ended up working out. 
beautifully. Um, and I did get to like go to Afghanistan and, and serve a, a combat deployment over there. What, what was, uh, what was that like? If you can talk about it, just cause it's, it's interesting to hear ordinance and everything that mm -hmm. you were doing and wanting to help people. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously I've seen a couple of photos, um, from your deployment to Afghanistan of you helping like the women and children. What was that person mm -hmm. like for you? And what were some like, I guess your daily, you know, routines while being on deployment over there? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I really had an incredible experience on my deployment and I'm, I'm still grateful for it. Um, so I was there, I always forget the years, but I think it was 2012 to 13. Mm. Um, I was, I went to a place called Fob Salerno, which mm. was an RC East on the border of Pakistan. And, um, yeah, so this, on this PRT provincial reconstruction team, I was their logistics officer and our specific mission was to, um, one of the things was to teach the Afghan farmers there how to farm things other than poppy, but still make a living. So mm -hmm. like fruit trees did great there. And, you know, they had like all their livestock in their collat or mud hut. So we were teaching them animal husbandry and other ways of, um, just getting more out of their livestock to make a sustainable living this way. And then also you mentioned the stuff with women. So, you know, we were there to also elevate, um, women in the society or specifically in the province because, you know, province to province, it's so different all over the place there. So, um, so one of the things we got to do was train their women's police force, which didn't exist before. Um, there were girls schools that were just starting to become a thing yep. and, um, getting resources for them. I mean, this really felt so impactful to me at the time. And, um, yeah, that, that really felt like my dream job for that daytime work that I was doing on the PRT. I was most of the time on the FOB, but, uh, because all this, you know, they had all this work with women going on, um, and only a few women in the unit, like they, you know, they, they wanted to send me outside the wire to go work on these. I was more than excited to go. So, yeah. mm -hmm. but that was only, um, what I was doing during the day. I actually, before I even, while I was sitting there at Fort Jackson, wondering how the heck I'm going to get on a deployment, um, and put these taxpayer dollars to use. I, I actually had this other dream job, which was, um, you know, at the time there was something called female engagement team leader program that had just gotten started up or CST kind of mm. came a little bit later, cultural support team. And, um, but branch wouldn't release me for it, you know, just, I don't know, bureaucracy. So, um, so I wasn't able to go on this thing, but once I got there on FOB Salerno, um, they were looking for one, FET, so one woman on the base to volunteer to go out with this, um, to go out with the 101st on uh, this targeting platoon on their missions. And um, and I was like, whoa, could I swing this like a day job and a night job? And, you know, <laughs> I was just on standby at night and some, sometimes we'd go out um, and it actually ended up, yeah, like my commander was incredible and he, he let me do both. And I had an amazing team and, oh my gosh, I had a team of like Navy, um, chiefs actually, who mm. were amazing. And they were, you know, they did so much of, of, of the work that they really enabled me to, um, you know, just go, go do more while I was there. So my role on that, on that team was, um, to, so I was attached to the Rakasans in the 187th and, um, before they started sending women out on these missions, you know, as vets, um, uh, they would just send like a platoon of male infantry soldiers out and, you know, maybe they'd go out to get a target. And once they would, you know, unexpectedly enter into a home, 
they would immediately separate the women and kids from the adult men. And they would only talk to the adult men because we were being really culturally sensitive to the fact that Afghan women can't talk to any men if they're not related to them. So, you know, we're there to win hearts and minds. And uh, so they stayed away from the kids, too, out of respect. So but I mean, the army kind of realized more than half of the people there were not gathering any of this intel. Um, And, you know, the women, they're always at home. You know, a lot of them aren't even allowed to leave. They know everything that's going on there. Mm. A lot of them have this like horrible life and they'd love to start talking if someone just asked them the questions. I mean, not all of them, but some of them. Um, yeah, sometimes they'd lie. But regardless, like we weren't capturing any of this intel. So they started sending out one or two women on these missions with, you know, these platoons to not only gather the intel, but also look under all those burkas that were just mysteriously going off into this other room because you don't know. If yeah. the guy that they're there to get just threw a burqa on one second before and now they're just, you'll never find them. Or if, you know, maybe the woman, the woman is the terrorist or, mm. you know, sometimes women had suicide vests on or they're hiding weapons under their burqas and all these other things. So, That's insane. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So now with like a woman there and usually I was the only one, but there was maybe one or two times I had a, a, a woman partner too. Um, so these women, you know, they'd be a lot more open to talking if I'd already searched the room, you know, and then I would remove my helmet because showing your hair is such an intimate thing there. Mm-hmm. Um, it really puts them at ease and the kids too. And, um, and the kids are so honest. So there's definitely times when our platoon, you know, we would, I would go get my intel, the guys would go get their intel talking to the men. Um, and there were there was more than once where I was getting intel from the women and kids that we ended up going with over what they'd collected from the men. Cause you know, you ask all these guys a question, I'll just be like, I don't know, or point, no, I don't know who that is, or it's that guy. But if, you know, you talk to, you know, well, I don't want to get into too many details, but um, there's, you know, it, it kind of just makes you wonder how much more of that could have helped if, if they'd brought women into the picture sooner. I know it was like, you know, kind of a process to get there. Um, and from what I understand, it is way more of a, or it turned into way more of like an actual program. Like I was out there just winging it. I had pretty much no training. They're like, you willing to go? I was like, sure. I was like, how, you know, do I search? And they're like, I mean, you've done this at Bullocks and things. And I'm like, okay. I mean, you just kind of intuit your way through it and like, see who seems like they're willing to talk, who you need to separate. And, um, but anyway, it was such a great experience. I'm actually the godmother to one of those guys from that platoon's kids. And really, and it was definitely the side of my deployment where like, you know, saw the action, the firefights and all that. But, it was such a professional team and um, really honored to be a part of it. And that, that was the way that I got to feel more connected to the Afghan culture mm. too. You know, we're like breaking into their homes in the middle of the night and kind of getting the full experience. And, uh, but we all came home safe. So it was, it's really good. Does that, does that happen often that you guys find women that are targets that have the vest on or the guys, you know, put on a burqa and slip away? I never encountered that on any of my missions, okay. but I've definitely heard of it. I don't know how frequently, um, but yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely stories that I've heard. It's a there, loyal woman. I, I mean, yeah. well, I, I can't tell you how many times that, yeah, like That's there's crazy. a certain, we'll just say there's intel or certain equipment or something we're trying to find and it's definitely, you know, women are hiding it. They're, they're the ones holding on to it because the men would know that we, we quote aren't allowed to search them, mm. you know. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. or it would be disrespectful to search them. So they figured it was, 
it, it would not happen. And so um, having the female engagement teams and then we had the uh, cultural support teams, the CSTs mm. attached to us, um, kind of opened that door to where we could you know, search women and kids and get oh, okay. the additional intel um, like Sophie was talking about. And it, it became very, very valuable. Like, cause I had multiple deployments to Iraq and we had some attachments like that, but it not, not very common. Afghanistan is where it really became incredibly effective because mm. again, they're just, their cultural, I guess, operations are like how they, uh, like women and men are separated mm-hmm. and how they communicate and things like that is just so different. Um, I imagine working with the kids is probably like one of the best things. I, about doing that job. I love, yeah, I love like the seeing their eyes light up and they're like, Oh, I can't, and they all gather around. I can't tell you. They're how many, beautiful. Yeah. They I can't tell you kids. how many times I taught kids to do like the, uh, rocker horns, you know, <laughs> like <they're laughs> <like> the Slayer. <laughs> they probably are still doing that. Yeah, probably. But oh, uh, I'm sure they're like yelling out a few words that they learned. Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> but these kids too, you know, they're just so happy with so little. Like mm-hmm. it's incredible. Um, you know, they'll get so amped over a pen. Like people were asking me, what should I send over there? Um, that like you can pass out to the kids when you go on the missions. I was like, send me packs of pens. Like if they're colorful, whoa, like that'll be this kid's prized possession. Mm-hmm. And they're just so grateful to have a pen, you know, cause they live, I, they just have nothing. I mean, yeah. it's, um, what, what were the there old... was even a time. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say there was, there was this one mission we went on. It was such a remote place. We flew there and it was, I mean, this Valley where I was just looking around, I was like, man have these people even heard of the taliban we are literally out in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. and beautiful stunning views but um you know we sat we were like kind of just talking and trying to get some intel from you know the villagers and in in their culture oh my gosh it's so beautiful if you compliment anything then they immediately have to give it to you and i made this Mm -hmm. mistake more than once and then if you refuse the thing it's rude and then they're offended so this little girl, hmm. this beautiful little girl came out to me and she had like glitter in her hair. And it was so shocking because I just didn't expect to see it out there. And I was like, oh, I, your hair is so beautiful. And I said that translator said it to her and she like blushed and like ran away. I was like, oh, she's shy. She comes out of her little mud hut with this little plastic vial of glitter and hands it to me. I still have it. I mean, I, wow. I was like, oh my gosh, translator, like, I cannot take this. I remember when I was a kid and like my sister and I would fight over like, a Dr. Pepper Bonnie Bell chapstick like that was our prized <laughs> possession and like this girl just gave me this this is like gold and um anyway it was such a beautiful thing but but yeah I, I had to be careful about saying you, nice things you know how hard that would be for me to accept glitter I hate glitter and if someone handed me glitter I'd be like oh shit do I say no because of how much I hate it ah sure give it to me that's that's I, know, I had no idea that that, that that was part of their culture mm-hmm. That's pretty I, cool. I'm trying to remember what were the pens back then that girls used to always write that were in color. Were they like the jellies? What were those? Oh, they were jelly rolls. Yeah, that's what they were. Yeah. The secure jelly rolls, and uh-huh. there was like the lightning jelly roll and the spark. Oh yeah, she yeah, knows her were, shit. That was like <laughs> elementary school for me. I, we, we would pass notes and we would write them in the jelly roll pens. It was a thing. Yep. <laughs> I bet there was people giving those kids like rip it cans. I mean anything. I oh used my to, gosh. I used to give them uh, glow sticks <laughs> like chem lights. Call them chem lights and oh, yeah. glow sticks all the time. They probably Dude, fall in love with those. They things. loved them. I, I have a really funny story though. This kid uh, was chewing on one. <laughs> oh god! And uh, 
it blew, it burst. It burst and it popped in his mouth. And he like, I, I don't know if you've ever <gasps> accidentally tasted one, but it, no. it tastes horrible. <laughs> it tastes bad. horrible. It tastes like alcohol. I think, I'm pretty sure it's just alcohol. Swallow it either. But anyways, it burst in his mouth. And, and I just remember his like shock on his face at first as he realizes it's like all over him, this green juice. And he's like, <laughs> oh, no. and then he just freaks out and he's like trying to swat the like, chem light juice off of his mouth and everything and trying to get it out and i i gave him water because i felt so bad for him i was like oh my god <laughs> look what you did but it was it was really funny i mean it was sad but it was also really funny <laughs> i hope he's still laughing about it tell him that story <laughs> yeah I, I hope if he remembers too. yeah <laughs> so even to even go forward um you know obviously you did one deployment from there but mm-hmm. you know what was the next step for you in, in transitioning back yeah. So, well, I did my deployment and then I went to Korea actually for mm. a little over mm. a year. I worked for um, be fun. I love a three star as a deputy XO and it was awesome. I was in Seoul. I really went there to kind of understand like, you know, my family history better, understand parts of myself better. I'd been to Korea so many times, but I like, I've never been fluent. I can read, write and understand a lot, but there was like, you know, a a real connection to it that I never really had. And I can't say I got much further just from living there because Korea is so different now than it was when my mom was growing up. It's Mm. like, especially if you're in Seoul, it's just like fast transportation, amazing food and like tons of plastic surgery. So yeah, um, plastic surgery. Oh my, (laughs) what are they trying to look like Americans? Hold on. on. Yeah. you, you, You could probably talk more about this, but yes, I was, so I went to uh, South Korea, uh, when would this have been? 2014, I believe. Oh, so and uh, I didn't know, now. well, I didn't know it was a thing. And then I remember seeing all the billboards and I was asking, uh, cause this was for a study abroad thing. And I, I remember asking one of the professors, I was like, Hey, what are all these billboards with all these, like, you can clearly tell it's, it's like surgery something. And then he was like, Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> and, uh, <gasps> plastic surgery is a huge thing in, huh. in South Korea. Like, Everybody gets plastic surgery, from what he was telling me. Are they trying to look like other it's cultures, like, or is it just to look more? Um, I think better. It's kind of, I mean, to me, to me as like someone who's half Korean, I feel like it's it's kind of its own look. It's it feels a bit anime inspired mm-hmm. to me, honestly. Okay. But I I have no idea really. I haven't done much research into this. I actually. At the time, I was dating a guy who thought it would be funny. This is like a thing Americans would do there sometimes. So he came to visit me from D.C. And we did a pretend consultation at one of these plastic surgery places just to like have them tell us all the things that are wrong with our faces just to get a chuckle. Yeah. It was pretty entertaining. <laughs> I would totally do that. But I mean, <laughs> what do I need to fix? Uh, but I mean, there it's, it's, it's like as common as getting braces. Like yeah. they don't think of wow. it as plastic surgery. So mm-hmm. it's just a really different, um, it's, it's a, just a really different perspective on it for them. Mm. That's how normalized it is. Okay. Yeah, it, it really is. So that's obviously where your life took you was, uh, first to South Korea and then where yeah. did it and go then from after there? Korea from there, I was like, okay, I worked for this general and, um, got like such a different perspective of the army from there. And it was fascinating. It was incredible. I had an amazing team and loved it, but I knew that, okay, I'm done with the army at this point. Like I wasn't even planning on staying beyond my five-year commitment at that point. I'd done six and I knew, Mm. um, I wanted to become a civilian. So I took this long summer off. I went, uh, you know, I kind of did a version of where I'm at now, but like, I was like, okay, I need a solo trip. I'm going to go to Mongolia Mm. because one of my friends, uh, she was actually one of my 
um, beast roommates at West Point. She had been stationed there and she was, she was trying to sell Mongolia to me. I was like, she was like, Oh, it was the best trip I did the whole time I was stationed here. I was like, so what'd you love about it? She's like, there's nothing for miles. And I was like, well, how is this like an endorsement? But once I started, you know, once I got there, I was like, Oh my gosh, that is the most incredible thing about Mongolia. So I went there, thought I figured some things out, but wow, I really only barely scratch the surface. And then did some weeks in India, went and hiked the Himalayas, um, ran to the Dalai Lama there on my birthday, totally random. It was nuts. Um, and then traveled to Europe. Um, and then, yeah, I was going to go, I knew I was going to go to business school. I had that figured out before I even left the army. So to me, business school just seemed like a no regrets move. Like mm -hmm. business just felt so broad. Like I had no idea what I wanted to do yet. I didn't want to have to pick anything yet. I just wanted to start getting exposed to things and take my time. Um, so Wharton's not a bad place to go. So I was there for two years and in Philly. Um, and in between your two years of business school, you go do an internship usually. So I interned at McKinsey, this consulting firm. And um, that seemed like, you it's know, huge still I wasn't yeah. ready to, to make any decisions. So I was like, oh, this will just keep on opening more doors. And I don't have to have to make any final decisions yet. So um, so I, and even, and even the, the role that I picked there as a generalist was like, all right, you're going to keep like every few weeks or every couple months, you're going to get thrown into a different function or different industry and literally get to see the full spectrum of business in corporate America, you know, fortune 100 companies. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's what I've been doing for the last four years. And, um, yeah, it's been an incredible four years, obviously so different from my army time. Um, but I, I am feeling called now to step off into something different. So yeah. I feel like the government chapter of my life has ended the corporate chapter. Like I don't see myself going back into the rat race. So mm -hmm. something now like with more nature and practical life skills and, and art, I feel like Could that's be really been missing in my life. Could be an awesome park yeah. ranger. Oh, well that's, that's kind of sounds like government. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's I true. can't do bureaucracy anymore. I'm yeah, just that makes done. sense. Wait, so, so to go a step back, is it true about, I've heard it from multiple people about Mongolia, about the street meat, about how it's like really bad. Street meat. Oh. Like the meat that they sell at vendors that you would oh, buy yeah. is like really like bad for you. It's got like, I don't know, all kinds of shit in it. And it like, I hear people getting sick from eating like the meat that they sell, like the, the little street vendors there. So, you know, that's probably true, but the way I did Mongolia was I just booked these, I booked like a couple who were my drivers mm -hmm. and they just drove me directly to different things that we had agreed on before. And they probably picked like not street meat kind of places <laughs> to make sure I wouldn't get sick. I, they eat a ton of meat and it's not the kind of meat that we're used to. I can't remember the animal that they eat so much of, but like you would just see this head get wheeled into these, you know, restaurants and stuff. Like cook it um, right there. And uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's, it's so different, but, uh, but yeah, actually I love my time there. I'm thinking probably after my van, I want to move into a yurt mm. just after being in one there for a bit and sleeping in one was so nice. Yurts would be fun. Mm. I like that style of thing. Like, especially like Airbnbs and you go around and stay in little yurts. Well, it's just so, sim so cute. It's simpler. Simple it off seems the grid. Like, right. Mm -hmm. It's just like everything is yeah. right there. Mm-hmm. It's mm. it's easy to just go from place to place, and I, I don't know what type you're looking at, but I've seen some really cool ones that um, 
have like the dividers that can be removed oh, to where yeah, it looks yeah. like oh, it's sectioned yeah. off rooms, but then you can remove the r- dividers and then it's just this giant open space. Sophie well. would probably go all out. <laughs> I could see well, the right mega, mega I've been researching both. I've seen exactly what you're talking about and mm-hmm. it does feel like really cool because, you know, if you get a 30 or 35 foot yurt, like you can really break up that studio apartment into a lot of areas. But that's actually not the traditional way to do it. And those always have stoves on the side. And Mm -hmm. then the whole place is not heated evenly. And there's some other issues with it. Like the ones traditionally have a fireplace right in the middle and these like poles that go down the middle that kind of, you know, I think make it really beautiful, but definitely kind of mess with how you could do a layout. Mm -hmm. And um, they, yeah. So I've looked at both because I actually think the traditional ones are so, they're so, they're just so beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. The ones that, you know, you get that are made in the U.S. are kind of look like a hip apartment, but there's something very familiar and comfortable about that. So I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. They're kind of they honestly cost the same amount. So yeah, and we'll see. So from going between your trips between Mongolia, India, the Himalayas, have you ever tried ayahuasca? <laughs> well, maybe we can talk about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Have you? <laughs> no. Um, so what's funny is um, my dad's been doing a lot of medicinal like mushrooms, uh, like microdosing and stuff like that. And he's been kind of telling me about it. And he's been talking about how he wants to do ayahuasca with a shaman um, with a friend of his. So he's been kind of telling me more about like the science behind it. And uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. And I don't want to go down like the rabbit hole of like Joe Rogan, like, you know, talking about ayahuasca <laughs> and DMT and all that. But um it, it, it really is interesting thing. So that's kind of why I asked. Wow. I mean, I your dad sounds it. pretty evolved. <laughs> he he certainly awesome. is. And, I do. And I, I, I've personally, for me, I would probably do, I've been waiting to do a sweat lodge um, from some of my mm. friends that are Navajo and live on res in various parts of like New Mexico and Arizona. I've been waiting to get the invitation to do a sweat lodge and uh, do peyote and, and do it mm. that way. And so I kind of want to do that first and then maybe do the whole ayahuasca side of it. Mm. Well, I think all these ancient modalities and stuff, plant medicine, oh my gosh, it's so powerful. It's kind of just crazy how I just think about like the way I was raised and how these things were. I don't even know if they talked about this stuff at Dare, but certainly the way Mm -hmm. that um, these things were have been portrayed in my life. Either it's like made up stuff that doesn't do anything or it's you know, evil. so crazy yeah. that you should yeah. never do it. But I think it's, it's literally like, um, you know, when done properly, oh my gosh, can be so much more healing than a lot of these pills and stuff that, that we mm-hmm. use oh, as totally. like more quick fix solutions. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I hear so. a lot of people that have, you know, done those more hallucinogenic, you know, um, different things like mushrooms, ayahuasca, DMT, but the pattern that I'm noticing a lot of people are, they're coming out and, and saying that they're a better person, that it's kind of, open their mind to the more smaller things in life. You know, they've had to face like their inner demon or or their insecurities one at a time. And uh, it's pretty interesting when you hear that. I know we have another veteran who's in our book who like openly talks about it, Mm -hmm. Um, how that like, and he lives in a van and uh, it's awesome. (laughs) Like I remember I met up with him and he like had a whole like little box and he was just talked to me about it and he was like, show me. And he was like, yeah, anytime you ever want to try it, it's right here. <laughs> like, wow. I'm like, all right, that's awesome. But I think more and more people are becoming more educated. And I think, you know, for people listening, whether you're for you or against it, 
Um, I just think it's interesting that it's being talked about more mm-hmm. like plant medicine mm-hmm. yeah. because I've always been against pharmaceutical drugs. Like I've broken, I think 11 bones and I've never taken pain pills. I've just dealt with it. And wow. It, it's pretty interesting. The, the therapeutic properties of it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I, I know I'm pretty sure you told me this. And so I'm wondering where it was in, in the past four years, but I believe you summited a pretty high peak at one point. <laughs> yeah, I like climbing things. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, this was, I think you're referring to Everest, mm-hmm. that was back in 2019. So now that was two years ago. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was, gosh, honestly, probably the reason why I'm in the stand right now. Yeah. What? Why? Why is? Yeah, that? I want to get deep into that because that's yeah for people listening. Like we totally like blew past that because we've heard it before. But that's an incredible feat. Yeah. Well, for many Everest. many different reasons, and I, I know you said you know you just wanted to do it, but I wonder, especially after going through the process, you know, and, and training for it and climatizing, eventually getting to the summit. Like, what was your thought process throughout all of that? Yeah. Well. Gosh, I mean, Everest, if you would have told me when I was 18 that one day I'd go climb Everest, I would I would never believe you. I mean, I showed up to West Point the most. I mean, I graduated at the top of my class physically, but I showed up there probably close to like absolute bottom of the class in terms of physical fitness. So I was totally shamed into becoming fit. Uh, I was like the weak link in the platoon and everyone hated me. So, um, but yeah, once I actually started running, I was like, oh, you know, I'm not that bad at this if I just practice. Fitness actually became the one healthy way that I've really, you know, over time let my dysfunction for intensity and all that play out in a socially acceptable way. Um, So yeah, fitness for me really started at West Point. I mean, how this ended up at Everest was I, I really, you know, the seed was first planted, um, right after I got out of the army, I did this thing called the death race. And it's like this multi-day adventure race up in Vermont. They don't do it anymore, but, um, you had to, you know, it was several days you couldn't sleep. You had this really bizarre packing list. that was tough to figure out, you know, how to get these things. Um, and then you show up there and you have no idea what, you know, the events are going to be and you never know what the next one is until you finish the one that you're on. And it's like Mm. carrying these heavy logs up mountains and buckets of water and not allowed to drop any, you know, spill any other, and like all this like brain memorization stuff. It was wild. But anyway, at that race, it was like 200 people a year who did it. And there was like some pretty hardcore people from around the country or the world. And there was like one or two people there who either were training for Everest or like had a friend who was, and cause you know, we were all like staying really close in touch, um, on Facebook. And like, I would see what people are sharing and I was like, wait a minute, am I like training and like competing with people who are on that level right now? And, um, <laughs> So that was just kind of like a seed was planted. But then I think I looked at the price. I was like, whoo, I'm never going to make that. So never mind. Um, yeah, it's pretty but that, expensive so, I mean, I to climb, at, isn't it? To do it's, it, like, se- it's like 70000 if you want to go with a company that's not going to leave you on the mountain if something happens. So, wow. um, And that's not including like all the mountains you'd have to do before it in order to even get accepted by one of these companies. Those are not cheap. And then all the gear is like, thousand it's definitely over six figures so um damn i didn't think i was gonna have that kind of disposable income um and then you know that was in my early 20s and then in my late 20s 
this is kind of separate, but like I, I realized I, you know, I was just looking at a map of the U S map of the world. I love traveling. At this point, I think I've been to like 80 or something countries. Um, and I'd hit almost every, I was like at 45 U S states without even trying. And then six continents. So, um, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be 30 in a couple of years. Maybe I should just try to do all the rest of this by 30. And it was just how I'm wired. Like I like to like find a lofty goal and then Mm -hmm. I just go, you know, put all my resources and effort towards it and try to make it happen. And, um, so I had one state left after, you know, when I was going, I did all the continents, got to, got through the states and the last state was Alaska. And I was like, okay, it's gotta be something epic there. Um, and I knew about Denali Mm -hmm. highest point in North America. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, like this feels like a fitting way to cap off my little project. Um, but I wasn't a mountaineer. And honestly, I didn't know enough about it. I thought that didn't matter. I was like, okay, these are just fit people who go work out in snow. But like, I can run up hills. I can carry a pack. I can do all these things. I do adventure races. Um, And like, there was a lot of things about just the thought of an expedition on Denali for a month that seemed really cool. Like, you know, in the military, this element of high stakes teamwork. Um, I'd been running marathons for years. I had, you know, I would run Boston at this point and had a Guinness world record for the fastest marathon of full military uniform. So I had a, like a really strong endurance base. And then I'd owned a couple of CrossFit gyms at that point and was like top hundred women in Asia at one point. So I had like this strength component too. I was like, could mountaineering be like the perfect fit of getting to enjoy all this, you know, fitness space that I have, but actually kind of be on vacation and looking at beautiful places like on fun teams and sharing the experience with them. So I tried to sign up for Denali with this company, American Alpine Institute. And they were like, cool. So where's your climbing resume? And I was like, yeah, I'm fit. You don't have to worry about me. And they're like, "Uh, yeah, okay. We'll see you at our winter skills training program. So, um, so I went and did that out in Bellingham and, um, it was really, I mean, yes, I definitely needed to go do that. I didn't know what crampons were. I didn't understand, you know, how to keep yourself, how to dry yourself off when you're soaking wet in a tent. Uh, like all these things. And I learned all those skills and then they let me go to Denali with them a few months later. Um, So that was really incredible. Um, And actually on that Denali team. So that was the first mountain that I actually climbed, I would say. And then, but on that Denali team, there was a guy who was training for Everest Mm because a lot of these people Mm -hmm. who go climb Denali are trying to get the seven summits, which Mm -hmm. is never something that I've been interested in, but um, that's how you, people keep seeing each other on these different mountains or plan to go on expeditions together. It's, it's pretty cute. So because once again, I'm like training with now I'm even closer training with someone. Um, and they're going to Everest or talking about it. And I, so the seed like grew a little bigger, like sprouted something. And I was like, okay, like this is, you know, years have gone by and I'm feeling like I'm getting closer to like this maybe being a thing that I could do. Mm -hmm. Um, and at that point, I'm working at McKinsey or I'm consulting and, um, you know, it was hard. It was a lot harder than the army. I thought, um, you know, in the army, it's like, sometimes you can kind of turn your brain off because it's so regimented Mm -hmm. and you are to an extent following orders unless it's, um, an unlawful one. Cause if it's not like, there's not a lot of room for like, Hey, I have this way to make it better. And like, it's, like, that's just not the vibe. Consulting is very different. Like, you better raise your hand if you have a way to make something better. So my brain was just exhausted from this job. And between projects, I was, like, really wanting to be doing something completely different, even if it was just, like, you know, working out so hard that I was throwing up or looking at a really beautiful place and being completely disconnected from, you know, cell phone signal. Mm. Um, so I 
yeah, while I was at McKinsey, I was like, okay, I still don't have 70,000 chilling in my bank account. Um, but you know, could this work out? So at that point I, I started doing some more mountains. So I went and climbed Cotopaxi, Chimborazo. I did, I had done like this week long expedition to Antarctica. And then later on I went to Aconcagua too, highest wow. point in South America. Jeez. So mm-hmm. Everest like suddenly was like, okay, this could totally happen if I got like three things together, which are one, the money, mm-hmm. which I didn't have two, two months off work, which I actually worked at a place where they don't care if you want to take a sabbatical between projects, they actually encourage it. Mm. And then the third was the training, which I knew, you know, I'd been like working out for so long and doing different mountains, which was really important. But like, I knew Everest was going to take a really specific kind of training for probably at least six months. Um, And I, you know, this list was still like pretty ostentatious, but I, I just knew like, I could make this happen, right? Like I could take out a loan, I could just take two months off work. Um, Probably a lot of other jobs I couldn't, but this one I actually can, even how demanding it is. So it's kind of crazy. And then the training, like that's just, that's on me to make sure that I train for Everest while I'm working at McKinsey. And, um, and it actually, you know, I decided to do it. So I took out a loan Mm. from USAA. Um, I told work my plans and they were super supportive Um, and then I was actually on a project at the time in West Palm beach, Florida. So no snow, no mountains. Um, but I was on treadmills. Like the second we left the client, I was doing all my work on my phone on a treadmill for hours, just like walking uphill with a weight vest on. And then, um, in New York city at the time where I lived on the weekends, I was just running all over across all the bridges in New York, back and forth through Brooklyn. And, uh, yeah, it was a pretty crazy six months, but it, I mean, I, I was like, so, I mean, at this point I'd done so many trained for so many different things and trained other people for different things. I made up my own training plan for this based off kind of like the Bible book, um, training for the uphill athlete that people used for this and it all worked out. So I was so fortunate to stand on the summit there and you never know what's going to happen on Everest. You know, you can like train all you want, but you don't know how your body's going to react on certain days or like what mother nature wants to deliver that season. And um, the luck of when your team is going to go, how things are going to shake out. And um, we had a, hmm. five people on our team and two of us ended up summiting. The other three guys got cerebral edema, which is really bad. Your brain swelling. Mm-hmm. Um, someone had frostbite on their foot. And then uh, my friend Andrew had pneumonia, but he actually went back this year and, and summited. So, wow. um, mm. but I felt really fortunate that everything, you know, worked out and, the feeling on the summit of Everest is like, I, I didn't, I didn't even think about it. I mean, I thought about it a lot before I went there and then I just completely stopped thinking about it when I was on the mountain. Cause like, I didn't want to, I didn't want to jinx it, I guess. I was like, whatever's mm-hmm. meant to happen is going to play out. And then like, I'll never forget though. Like the last few steps before that I was like, Whoa, there's no more up. Like I'm seeing this, like start to flatten out. Like, is this about to happen? Like literally on top of the world. To the summit? I want to, I want to, yeah, yeah. I want to, um, uh, breakdown questions that i know people are listening are like wait what like what because it's crazy like to hear all this information at once well yeah and, and not like break it down slowly and it's like <laughs> people that are listening it's like yeah okay so you can go from being like out of shape and then climb on ever so there's no excuses you can find a way to do it <laughs> first of all and then secondly it's kind of crazy to think like so how many days does that take to summit Everest. 
It's two months. Two months. It's pretty much two months for everyone because you're not just on a snowy it's, mountain. It's obviously, mm. hmm? that's insane. And then, well, you're not always going up. You have to like acclimatize by yeah. climbing high and sleeping low. So you actually like mm. go up part way twice and like all the way back down to base camp before yeah. you finally make your your bid for the summit. Man, that's gotta be like yeah, brutal because I feel like in my mind, I just want to keep going up. I don't want to go back down and go back up again. <laughs> so it's crazy to think like I, going back and forth. I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories because I, I have a lot of friends who are big into mountaineering of uh, going up to one of their um, conditioning climbs mm. and then doing that. But then on their final climb where they were actually going to go to the summit, they got hurt or something like that. Oh, so they, they train all this time yeah. for it. And they went on their like prep climbs and everything, no problems. And then they go for the final and get hurt. That's or, brutal. Yeah. Or something happens, piece of equipment breaks, some, something happens and they don't get all the way up. I, wanna, I also want to know, because you mentioned it, how do you dry off when you're wet in a tent? <laughs> oh, it's so crazy. Okay, so somehow this, this works. In your, in your sleeping bag, mm -hmm. as long as you have like really your body heat and you wear your wet clothes, you'll wake up and they'll be dry. Mm -hmm. Okay. And like, that that's sense. not really intuitive. Most people will be like, let me hang this from the top of my tent. No, oh, like freeze. all that condensation is going to like get on there and it's going to freeze and never dry out. But like yep. your body heat will dry it out. And a way to even accelerate that further is to put like a one, you know, boil one Nalgene and or one Nalgene full of water and put that in your sleeping bag. And like, that is going to be the best sleep of your life. Sleeping mm -hmm. on ice with a hot Nalgene in a, you know, oh. below 30, below 40 sleeping bag. And like, <laughs> you will sleep like a baby. And honestly, I haven't slept that well since. And, um, and that'll dry everything out. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I actually learned this in ranger school. They, uh, I would sleep with my wet stuff all the time. Really? Like if I was mm -hmm. finally able to get in a sleeping bag for whatever reason, like either I would be wearing my wet stuff or I would put it in the sleeping bag with me and basically be, yeah, you put it at the bottom. Yeah. And, and basically you use your heat to dry it out, but that's crazy. Mm -hmm. So, and you mentioned, you know, Alaska was, it was your, well, was the last state I guess you went to. Um, mm -hmm. so that's, that's my 50th state I need to visit and I'm, I'm trying to plan. <gasps> I'd love to go to Alaska next year. Oh, I know we talked about that when yeah. I saw you in Tucson. Um, yeah, this this gosh, year. And then, you know, all this stuff. I was planning on going back there, you know, over the summer and I'm just hanging out in Montana instead, which mm -hmm. not a bad place to be. But, no, um, I mean, Glacier is right there. Like that place is beautiful. Yeah. That'd be my second best is yeah. to go to Montana and Wyoming and just spend the whole summer there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I plan oh, on so good. I plan on trying to go to Alaska and maybe uh I'm not going to do any crazy mountaineering, but I'll do some hikes up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should go to, you know, Talkeetna is where people fly into in order to go to Denali. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, there's so many beautiful places in Alaska, but I will just say coming off Denali and going there, like you feel like you're in like the most insane level of heaven. It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go back there and do like a salmon fishing trip or something. Well, that's what I want to do. Um, Denali is on my list because I want to see the national park. Um, I want to like go fishing, maybe go hunting up there. Like I want to maybe spend two or three weeks and, and really try and soak up as much as I can in that time frame. But oh, so recently, definitely. and maybe you can touch on this a little bit. Obviously when people are summoning Everest, they're coming across the previous people that have hiked and mm -hmm. that have died mm -hmm. on that mountain. Mm -hmm. There was actually, I don't remember what color clothing or where he was at, but it's near the summit. There was somebody that I think it was in the same what, what, what uh, year did you summit? 
2019. Are you going to say this guy from Colorado? No, I see. I don't know where he's from, but it was around that. I think that time frame. But I was watching a YouTube video of some people that summited it, and the the gentleman's son commented on it and said, "That's my dad." And he was like, oh, that, "He was like, God. that's actually my dad that uh, that, passed, oh that passed away. Jeez. I can recognize his outfit and all that, and I've already seen this video and photos." And I was like, Ugh. "That's crazy." And like mm. people were honoring, you know, this kid who who lost his dad up there. But I mean, how many people are up there now? Hundreds of no, people that have passed away. Um. So I don't have any numbers offhand. I climbed on the Nepal side. There's also the China side that mm -hmm. you can climb up, and there's, um, you know, people on either side. There, you know, a lot of these. They're like markers. I would say, like, yeah, like the most you know, some of the most famous mountaineering guides who, you know, have died on Everest have been intentionally left there. Um, mm. and when someone passes away there, there's, there's different options, especially if they like die and they're still connected to this fixed line. Cause mm. there is a fixed line mm. that, that goes pretty much to the summit. Um, and if you go with a, um, if you go with like a $70,000 company, um, like, the one I went with adventure consultants, they're incredible. Um, like they're not going to leave you clipped into the line, like a frozen dead body, you know, they're It'll going to do I, I knew when I went to Everest that I might not summit, but I would definitely come home. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's the level of like expertise and professional and everything. Like they would turn me around before I got to the point. And that's what they did for these three other guys, which, you know, that's why we all signed up with them. Um, it's worth the and investment I won't say that, just yeah. with that. Oh, for sure. Bringing your body for home sure. in case, you know, God has a plan that that's your last day. Um, well, well just, I mean, I didn't even think it would get to that point. Yeah, like, I, I, I didn't think I would die. Making I think sure I would you just have the plans like, in place so you don't get like, to that point. Yeah. Um, but but sometimes this happens. And who knows? Maybe maybe that could have happened. Maybe I could have had a heart attack out of nowhere or something. But mm. um, when someone passes away and they're still connected to the line, like they'll leave the body there because... Um, you know, these companies will, they're not going to, if you go with a budget company, they're not going to put the effort into proactively, you know, taking Sherpa's um, efforts and mountain guides efforts away from their mission for all the rest of their clients to bring a body back down because you need every little, you know, breath of oxygen that you can get up there. Mm -hmm. And that's just additional effort to, mm -hmm, to yeah. do it. It's a lot of extra effort to, to drag a body. And um, and they don't know if the family even wants it. Sometimes the family just wants them to cut the string and let them roll down the side and stay there. Sometimes, you know, well, that's mm -hmm. not really the position that they're in and they're, you know, maybe off to the side somewhere and they'll just stay there. But then sometimes they, they want to pay a bunch of money and get the body brought back. And that's, that's never going to be free. It's going to be really expensive. So mm -hmm. they'll come back down, find out what the family wants, and then um, maybe go back up there to go get it. I mean, these Sherpas can make a lot of money that way. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. There's even some kind of, you can look on the internet about certain companies that kind of seem like, you know, they're making a business out of it in a bizarre kind of way. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's really heartbreaking when you see these bodies and, I wasn't really prepared for it because I'd done yeah. some reading before and I'd heard like a lot of them you actually don't see a lot of them like and depending on how much snow's on the mountain mm. maybe they're covered maybe just a boot sticking out but you kind of have to know where they are and the route is not always the exact same every year it's like whatever route makes sense and this mountain is like when you're in the ice um you know 
it's called the ice field. I'm already forgetting these terms. Whatever, the first section that you could go through that's the most dangerous part, like it moves, I think, up to like seven feet a day. So oh, wow. Wow. Um, they have these ladders going across certain like giant crevasses that who knows how deep they go. And on this mountain, the whole route is, is constantly shifting. So you might not like see these bodies. But um, but yeah, the year I was there, we did see several that were still in the mm. line or off to the side. And um, gosh, it's it's such a weird feeling of, mm. of like just feeling so heartbroken for these people. And mm. you feel so connected to them because it's like we're all here with the same dream of yeah. wanting to mm. have this experience of standing on top of the world. And like. You know, I feel pretty terrible right now, if I'm being honest, like I'm on the verge of throwing up and have altitude sickness and all that. But like, is this how is this how bad they felt like one second before they never took another step again and just sat down and never got up? Or Mm. or am I like nowhere close to that? You just don't know. And you just kind of have to like trust that your Sherpas and guides and oh, my gosh, my my guide. had This was his 20th summit of Everest. And like my Sherpa was like i don't know not far behind that and so like they have so much experience and and i really trusted them they were constantly like checking on me and they would make me like move much faster than i thought i was capable of but it was it was smart the way that they were doing it so we wouldn't get stuck or anything yeah i Um, imagine it's all very methodical and um that's crazy the mindset behind that because i would i would think if i wasn't with these kind of elite companies that are very experienced you know maybe you're there with just I don't think you're ever by yourself, but you know, you're just not with, with, with these companies that you're investing your money into. That would be going mm-hmm. through my head of stumbling across the body and being like, is that going to be me in about mm. a day or two, mm. you know, like just to be thinking or maybe five minutes or five just, minutes. Yeah, you am, don't I, know. am I going to make it, yeah. you know, or something tragic going to happen? And it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like the mindset of having to push through that and be like, yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. And, you got to keep going. Well, uh, yeah, I'm wondering, was it more of a, cause I don't think you, I can't think of another situation, honestly, that you're, you're really in a position where you're literally walking in the footsteps of somebody who just died or maybe they died a while ago, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. And, and you're literally in their mm-hmm. exact same spot. But does that like, did it ever help you like inspire you or push you harder or like know that all right i gotta go more you know mm-hmm. what i mean than i than i am and or i need to go further or was it more of like oh am i did i make the right choice <laughs> should i be here right now uh, it's a couple things i think one you're just constantly scanning everything about your body and the way you're feeling mm. like it's easy to just zone out or like kind of start to space out mm-hmm. and like that's really bad and Um, you know, on like a long run, I'll totally do that on purpose. So I'm not thinking about my breathing or like how, Mm -hmm. you know, something hurting or something like that or how tired I am. But uh, over there, it's like, you constantly have to be like wiggling your toes every so often, you know, thinking about how cold you are in certain areas and be willing to say something if something's an issue. So many people lose digits unnecessarily just because they're like, well, I don't want to say anything, but like, they come back and their fingers black. Like, you know, there's, there's a moment, there's a a time to start talking and you kind of just have to know your body. And that's why these companies won't take you unless you've done a bunch of other mountains and done experience, like extreme, you know, extreme effort on Denali. You carry a lot more weight on Denali because there are no Sherpas or extreme altitude at like, you know, Aconcagua 7,000 feet or something before you get to 8,000 feet. So Um, you might've messed up those numbers by a thousand, but, um, but yeah, so, you kind of just like it's this meditation of always scanning your body and being like, is this is is any part of this like on the verge of like not being okay? And um, 
But then the other part, and this is kind of a weird thing, but it's a thought that I had that I've never heard anyone else say. There's something like, I don't know, you know, people love to mock people that die on Everest and they think it's like this vanity thing. But Hmm. I think it's, I, I think it's so, I don't know, there's something really incredible about seeing someone, you know, have that in them to push themselves to that point not Mm -hmm. saying that anyone should die but like having that much heart and passion for anything Mm -hmm. is not something i see in the everyday person walking down the street and and there's something about that that i really respect yeah no totally If, if you're willing to put yourself in those circumstances knowing that you may not make it out um, it takes a lot more. Well, uh, yeah, you don't go to Everest not knowing that people have not died there. No. You know what I mean? Like you, you go yeah. there knowing you have to face that. And so, yeah, I can see, especially and especially going back to what you were saying, where some of the families want them to stay, you know, in place is it's almost kind of a, a beautiful way to pass. Like, especially yeah. if it's the thing you love to do and that's like what you were driven to do be part of nature again yeah and to like be there totally Mm -hmm. and so i can i can absolutely see that perspective of it as well i would want that i mean if i was to do it and i passed away oh for sure i'd want my family to just be like you know what he loves nature so much that he doesn't even want to be cremated leave him up there like he's part of the earth now and um it's crazy and i can also imagine the mental like fortitude of pushing through every day for two months because i've talked to people that have just done like kilimanjaro and mm-hmm. they've talked about like how you get in this weird headspace to where you almost feel like, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? Because they just go up and up and up and up all day long that they start to go crazy. Hmm. Like it starts to drive their mind down a negative kind of path because they just almost forget who they are and why they started doing mm. this. Yeah. I think Kilimanjaro, you know, it's not one that I've done, but, um, you know, that one's got its own set of challenges, I think, mm-hmm. because it's more accessible to folks. Yep. Um, I think, you know, people who maybe don't have that mindset cultivated yet will kind of suffer in that way there, even mm-hmm. though it's not like necessarily the one that's physically going to crush you in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, you eat a lot of local food on that trip. And I think a lot of people just get, you know food poisoning. So that on top of trying to do this while you're probably going to have some altitude sickness is like just such a challenging way to like thrive and like be excited about something like Mm -hmm. on, on the night that we were summiting, uh, you know, it took, it was like, Oh, I can't even remember. Um, you know, it's, it's over the course of a night. Oh yeah. We we started at 10 PM and we got up to the Mm -hmm. summit at like 6 AM and then you got to go back down. But, um, on, on that trip, it was just, yeah, really, you know, I was so nauseous. I mean, I would have altitude sick. There's four camps on Everest before the summit and I would, I would get it above camp two. And I mean, people get altitude sickness at different levels. Like some Mm -hmm. people get it when they fly into the Denver airport. Like for me, I had a limit two, and it was camp two on Everest. And above that, like I could go, but I was so nauseous and just being nauseous. It's really hard to enjoy something when you're nauseous, but Mm -hmm. You just keep what, going what, what and is, it comes in waves and it goes away. I've never felt that. What is the feeling of altitude sickness? It's, is it throwing up? Is it dizziness? It's everything. Yeah. It's different for each person. Okay. Um, yeah, for me, it was nausea hmm. um, and like really probably not fun to listen to dry heaving and like sometimes a little bit of throwing up. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it was really just the nausea and the headaches for mm-hmm. sure. 
but I was popping Excedrin like it was candy up there to get rid of the headaches. I would sleep with Excedrin because like it would make the pounding go away and I could like level out and go to bed. The diarrhea to keep your pants warm. <laughs> the only <laughs> the only place I experienced uh, mountain or, or uh, uh, altitude sickness was actually in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, well, those peaks are huge. Yeah, I think we're up at where like, at. <sighs> trying to remember the peaks it was on the pakistan border um wait while you remember correct me uh, correct me if i'm wrong sophie is everest twenty four thousand feet and growing uh something like that <laughs> I know it, I know it's... you know i'm not good at memorizing numbers years after i like i have to like spout it out over and over again it's been a while since someone asked you this. i want to find it let me grab my it's phone. over eight thousand meters it's yeah it's 24 something i'm gonna grab it i want to find out oh, people listening people are probably like no you dumbass it's this <laughs> <laughs> all right twenty nine thousand thirty two feet what is it Twenty nine thousand thirty two feet i was way off 20 almost thirty thousand feet yeah it's up there that's insane i feel like successful that i've done like you know 13 14 in colorado and even then i'm like heaving just to get like two three miles 14ers are a big deal when I would like go back to Colorado and just like do a run after you know my family's lived there for a while and I'd come from anywhere else I would go on a run and I'd feel it in my legs in the first five minutes like you got to be hanging out there for a while for it to feel normal I mean that's why we acclimatize on Everest that makes sense but that's just crazy to think that it's double that of some of those peaks in Colorado I want to I want to um I'll let Dan come back well, to it when he finds I, out. I can't remember the mountain range. But anyways, I was uh, I think we were up over ten thousand feet and I it I just got lightheaded and sick. Yeah. And like just I think felt anything woozy. over ten had to sit down for a while. Anything over ten, most people I think yeah. if they're not climatized, they're gonna start feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um so to kind of move forward with things, uh, obviously, you know, you're doing your podcast with us in your van, and I wanna get <laughs> into the story. Uh her name is Sage, and I wanna yes. get into the story of after Everest, what inspired you to want to live that lifestyle in a van? And what are some of the challenges that come with that? Yeah. So I really feel like Everest inspired this, honestly. Um, Mm -hmm. After being out in the Himalayas for two months straight, sleeping like a baby for 12 hours a night on ice, um, (laughs) I came back to my life in New York City and flying around to clients. And I was like, whoa, this is a shock to my system. I, I wasn't planning on leaving work, but I figured I could, you know, make one decision and drastically improve my lifestyle by just leaving New York City. So I wanted to be near nature and the city just, you know, actually the city was something I, I loved and really wanted to try because like in the army, you don't get the experience of well, some people do, but I didn't get to go to New York City mm-hmm. and live there or, you know, in a major city. I was like hanging out at all these random army bases in my 20s. So I felt like it was like a rite of passage for my 20s I never got to do so anyway but after two years I was done um and I wasn't I like was done drinking at that point for a couple years and all I was doing in New York was brunch and yoga so I was like okay it's time to leave (laughs) and I just became homeless and um didn't renew my lease with my roommate threw my stuff in storage and it didn't actually you know being a homeless consultant is kind of normal though because we're you know we're flying to clients during the week and staying in hotels. And so if you're paying rent, you're kind of not even home. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the weekends, you can go home. I was in New York like six days a month with a crazy expensive apartment. But yeah. um, but 
what I, you know, what a lot of like 21 year old business analysts will do is they just won't get an apartment. They'll stay at friends places, travel around. Um, so I was kind of living like a 22 year old business analyst life <laughs> in my thirties. Um, and I was trying out different towns on the weekends. Cause I was like, all right, I think my life is moving, you know, closer to out West. I grew up in Ohio. I don't see myself there. Um, I want to be around more nature. So West makes sense. I was trying out different cities on the weekends, but, um, that was cool for like, you know, a while. And then the pandemic hit. So, mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't flying to hotels anymore. Um, we were all remote and I didn't have a place like a normal place to stay. I'd like figuring out all these different short-term things. And, um, I realized, gosh, this is like the first time in my life. I haven't had this perpetual motion and it just felt really weird. And van life, you know, I, I, for, I, I recently started thinking, Hmm, if I move out West, it might be nice to have a van to like go adventure around in on the weekends. Yeah. But I had done no research on this. Um, and didn't, you know, wasn't actually planning on making this happen that soon. And um, so I talked to some friends because, and none of them had vans, but you'd be surprised. Like for every 99 people who research the death out of van life, there's like one person who actually goes and does it. Mm-hmm. So I had all these friends who had done all the research and ready for me. And I talked to them and like six weeks later I was in Sage. That's so crazy. that was like June um, 2020. Mm-hmm. And I've been in here full time since then. And yeah, you mentioned the challenges. I think for me, because, you know, a lot of van lifers that you'll see on Instagram and all that, they, um, they may look like perfect. Free li- yeah. <laughs> their vans are beautiful and their lives look so awesome. And they are, and they're in nature a lot more than me. Mm-hmm. So they're like freelance people who set their own hours. Like I, I still work nine to five at McKinsey during the week. So, mm-hmm. um, I, Wi-Fi is probably my biggest challenge and yeah. balancing that out with where I want to be. So, um, so, but I, I figured out the Wi-Fi thing pretty quickly. I have like several ways of getting it, um, in my van and like backup places. And I'll never not be in a town during the week because, you know, like that's my job is affording me this lifestyle. And it's not really the culture at McKinsey to just ditch your team and go do whatever you want. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think really the challenge now is getting enough nature time in because, mm. you know, I'm still working. And um, that's that's really the extent of my challenges, though. Like, there's little things that pop up, but um, but I've kind of just always been one of those people who doesn't freak out over little things or, you know, uh, imagine all these problems that could happen mm. or, you know, being around those kind of people just really exhausts me. and. Yep. I've lived in remote places. Like I seek out harsh environments for fun and vacation. So like probably just another thing on my to-do list might look like a challenge for someone. Like I don't have a bathroom or a shower in here. And that like really, really bothers people. I don't know why, but they like take that personally or something. I was just about to say your challenge is Wi-Fi, And I'm like, well, fucking done. I'm buying a van. (laughs) That's the only challenge. Because most people are listening. You're like, where are you pooping? Like, where are you showering? It's like, well, dig a hole. Who cares? I have like a million creative, intuitive ways to go figure that out. Like, dude, I would build like a little chair that has a wooden pallet that I can dig a hole and sit on and just poop out in the wild and then i've showered in Amazing. lakes for like a month or two <laughs> and it feels great yeah. to shower in cold lakes <laughs> oh god it's the best i actually think it's better for my skin and hair too mm-hmm. like my hair looks like i got a blowout after it dries with like whatever <laughs> like algae or something's in the water or something it's <laughs> it's a good program to be on so I like I even redid redid my you haven't seen it Bo mm-hmm. since I last saw you but I redid the inside of my van I've um, seen photos since we, of you know met up and mm-hmm. took the photo and uh 
And even then I was like, okay, if I'm going to redo this whole thing, should I put a bathroom shower in here? And I was like, you know what? (laughs) Nah, I'm just not (laughs) going to do it. I want this space for other things. Like I don't need Mm -hmm. it. It's not a priority for me. most, Most people too, if you're saving money on, you know, rent or a mortgage on a home, I mean, get a gym membership because there's Planet Fitness in 24 hour everywhere. Like if you really need a shower once a week, you just go and take a shower, get a workout in, and then you shower in lakes or rivers four or five days out of the week. Well, I mean, that's what a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think during the pandemic, I don't know if Planet Fitness, I I forget if that was like, yeah, a lot of them did. um, It just got kind of tricky. I think even for, for that whole, I mean, and who even knows what the situation is now, but um, but yeah, like that's a, a good plan, but I like, I have some workout equipment in here. Also, I love to just, you know, I've spent so many years like beating up my body with like really heavy, you know, stressful lots of, I mean, so much probably like stress on my central nervous system and all this stuff. And it's kind of nice to just like relax and do a lot more just like walking. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I never thought I'd be this person until I was like 80, but like, to do a leisurely stroll in a beautiful area with like just a camelback and not feel like I need to put rocks in my backpack in order to make this hike worth the time, hmm. which literally is how I was up until, you know, right before I moved into this van. It's, it's so nice. And weirdly, like, I feel like I'm in better shape now because of it. So yeah, I mean, my body's that, been yeah, receptive. You doing yoga. I mean, all those things out in nature. Yeah. Just, I imagine that's all you would really need. Totally. So how, how do you, um, I know you've probably thought about this and maybe you don't have an answer to it. How long do you plan on kind of continuing this lifestyle? I don't know. I think, you know, I thought I was like, <laughs> not, not quite that. Like at, when I first started, I was like, okay, I'll see where I'm at after six months and six months went by and I was like, I feel like I'm just getting started. Mm-hmm. And then I got to the year mark and I was like, wow, this is only getting better, like way better than when I started. Like I I loved it when I first started and I'm like, I got this figured out now and it just keeps on getting better. So, um, and you know, the reasons why I came into this van, the state of the world, honestly, haven't really changed. So Mm. it's not like, Hmm, I'm like really itching to go back to New York city now and go back into that life. Like I don't think I'll ever go back to that again. So, um, but I am thinking, you know, this is not going to be a full time thing. Um, I will never get rid of my van. <laughs> People are like, you want to sell it? I'm like, absolutely not. Like I became, you know, this is, this has been my chrysalis. Like I've that's, changed. That's a part of you van. now. So yeah. Yeah. Sage is like an extension of me. Like I, 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 I could not bear getting rid of her. So, um, but I, but there's probably room in my life for like this plus something stationary, you know, I got to mm-hmm. stick the yurt somewhere. So, um, I'm starting to think about where that place could be. Mm. Um, but I'm not at all, I don't even know where I don't have a timeline. It's just like, okay, that's like the next phase that I think I'm moving to. I'm not going to the suburbs after this or anything. It's, but I know where I'm heading. I just, I'm waiting for it to kind of become clear. Are you, cause I know when you met up with Bo, you were, uh, in Moab, right? You guys met up near Moab. Yeah, we can talk about then, that story. Well, I, I do. Well, actually, go ahead and talk about it, and then I'll, I'll ask my question because okay. it was interesting. Well, what was no, interesting? No, I would go on with it because that's a longer story to tell. Yeah, I don't know what just happened here. Hold on, bear with me. Technical issues. All right. Um. <laughs> anyways, uh, yeah. So you were in Moab, then uh, Arizona for a little bit. Like, where where all have you traveled, and where are you looking to still travel? Like, uh, while you're living the van life. 
Well, you know, I like to chase 70 degree weather mm. and um, I kind of, I did like a pretty perfect, you know, I started in Colorado, pretty central and did like a pretty great first year loop, like got to see the Pacific Northwest when the weather is mm. glorious. I got to be in the Southwest when the North was like covered in snow and like Florida and like, you know, the Southeast also. And, um, and I got to be in the Northeast when the fall foliage was happening and, that was kind of like a really awesome circuit. So I feel like I've covered all the major parts of the lower 48 um, that I really wanted to go to. And mm -hmm. on this second year, I've actually like repeated some of that stuff. Like, I feel like I drive through Southern Utah, Moab. Like, oh. I can't <laughs> avoid that place. I don't know. Yeah. I'm always going through there to get somewhere. Um, and California, my gosh, I spent so much time there. Um, at this point, you know, I had this dream of going to Alaska at some point, and I'm not even going to try to plan that. Um, I... I am going to go to Idaho after this mm. and spend some real time there, which I haven't done yet. Um, and then who knows? I might head out east because, you know, there's so much like the West, I think, of America is not what I grew up in. Been very recent, you know, recently discovered all of, of these places and really love them. It's just so magnificent. Honestly, my whole like life up until my van was on the East Coast. Like I grew up in Ohio, went to school in Philly and New York, um, lived in New York. And, you know, all, most of the army bases I was in were on the East Coast, too. So mm -hmm. that's where all my friends are. So um, I might want to go see them and and head over there again for the fall foliage. I miss Ohio a lot, actually. I'd love to go spend. I wanted to spend a full month there. Um, at this point I'm just hanging out in Montana so long. I don't know if that's going to be possible, but, um, but yeah, there's, there's really like, I'm pretty open. There's, you know, people I'd love to see and, and plans I want to go do, but it's not like, okay, I can't stop van life until I go to this one place. Like mm -hmm. it, it kind of just naturally happens. Like I've got this yeah. Google map of van life. I call it van life 2020. I'm never going to change the title, but I just pin like all the recommendations people give me and you know, I'll be in a place. And I'll be like, all right, where am I going next? I try to not mm -hmm. make any like plans with people because I did that at the beginning and I realized it constrains so much of what mm -hmm. I was able to yeah. do. Like it actually, if I make a plan two months out, it impacts every single day leading up to that. Like there's, you know, I can't like just run off and go in this other direction or follow this, you know, Oh, meet someone cool. And like, they're going on this adventure. Like I can't, cause I like made this commitment to someone two months later, I have to be in this place. So yeah. I stopped doing that. And, uh, and it really enabled me to like take my time and go explore all these little pins on my map. I can just be like, all right, where do I want to go next? And um, yeah, so that's that's the that's hard kinda... part is when you plan it. And for a lot of my trips, like especially when we were working on the 20 year war, creating that book, I mean, that was planned. I had to know where I was going to be at each day. And sometimes, oh my gosh, sometimes you're driving route for that. It, oh, man, <laughs> it overwhelms insane. me because I want to be doing what you're doing. I want to just be like, OK. I know I'm going to be here this day, but hey, if weather happens or if I see something cool that I want to pull over and take photos of or wait till the next morning to take a photo of it, I want to just have mm -hmm. that freedom. So and what's interesting is you do all the traveling properly. I go to the worst spots at the worst time of year, <laughs> like in the wintertime. <laughs> guess who went north? I shot up all the way up to like the tip of Maine with Dan. And then I went to Michigan and like below 18 degree weather. And, um, oh my gosh. <laughs> and drove a car with like no four wheel drive, like didn't use chains, like, and then, whoa. <laughs> and then I, th I think I saw you were in Moab. Um, I'll tell a story of how we met here in a sec, but 
I think you were just recently in Utah, maybe a few months ago. Uh, and, and you were like, oh, it's so hot. I've only been here for a day or oh, two. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And I just went out there and spent like a week. And, um, you know, so I go to like the hot deserts in summer and then I go to the North States in the winter. <laughs> but it was kind of funny for people that haven't heard the story already. Obviously, you're in our book, The 20 Year War. And I remember when. Mm-hmm. Well, it was it was, it was me because I, I was talking to Gus. Yes. Uh, he So Gus is in the book as well. Um, uh, Gus Giachman. And um, I was talking to him and I was, you know, just initially saying, you know, who are some other people you think would be great for this book? Mm-hmm. And uh, he immediately like jumped was like, you have to talk to Sophie. And I was like, okay. Aww. And uh, he was like, she has an incredible story. You need to talk to her. Um, just hang up now and call this number. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Ah. <laughs> So uh, I remember calling you, or maybe I texted you first or something, but it was it was pretty much out of the blue, and uh, and then we talk over the phone, and I remember because he told me you were you were driving, you were traveling, mm-hmm. uh, and you were in a van, and, and he was like, so I don't know how this is going to work out because I know Bo's also traveling across the country, so you know it probably just won't work out, and if that's the case, so be it. And then I get what? on the phone with you, start talking a little bit, and then somehow get to the fact that you're on your way to moab and i was like get out of here i was like guess where Bo is at right now (laughs) i was like he is he is in moab at this moment the one place that you were driving to (laughs) and that was that was was like an hour away yeah in like the whole united states yeah i was in going in that direction i came from these synchronicities this just happens in van life i don't know how but it's like burning man (laughs) it it was it was really crazy because i came from uh grand junction and uh, I remember I drove from Colorado into Utah and I'm the same with Moab. Moab is like very dear to my heart. Like anytime I can make an excuse to go through Moab, I'll stay a night or two. And um, I remember Dan called me up and he's like, where are you? Like right now. And I was like, I'm sitting in like a holiday inn, like about a shower and probably go to bed. And then I'm going to go to California tomorrow. And he's like, no, call Sophie. She's heading to Moab. She's like an hour out. And I was like, all right. So I called you up and I remember I was like, where are you? And you're like, oh, I'm going to be staying there. And maybe we can like last minute get together tomorrow morning and uh, and take the photo. But we got to record my story quick because I think you had a business meeting you had to get to that mm-hmm. morning. Oh, yeah. And it was just so funny, like the timing of, <laughs> of meeting up and how things work out like that. And then so I obviously got photos of you and, and the photos from Moab are obviously the one that made it in the book. But I was like, I kind of want to get some like desert stuff, like, you know, outside of Moab, like more like saguaro cactus, because you mentioned you're meeting a friend in Arizona. So when mm-hmm. I circled back, we met up again in Arizona. And that was a really cool setup where you guys were at right there. And oh, uh, that was so great. It was just funny. And that's when we were talking about Alaska. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. There, there's a part of me like I talked to Dan about a lot of my travels. And Dan's like, I don't know. I imagine you're probably going to be in a van at some point. Yeah, because it would be it would be just easy for me to do artworks and focus on being in a state for a month at a time and really like absorbing that state Mm. and like maybe working on new projects within that state, like photographing like the local people or, you know, just different things and then moving on. And I think that I could probably do something pretty epic if I lived in a van for like a year or two. I'd probably want to do. Oh, my God. I don't know if I'd want to do it past two years. I'd want to have a short couple years of having that lifestyle and have like a massive project that i do i don't think you could spend a month in indiana though 
I think you'd uh, you get tired of it pretty quick. Yeah, probably the Dakotas. I'd <laughs> just skip kidding. through. Well, North Dakota, I'd probably skip. <laughs> Not to hate on. Wait, you'd skip North, North Dakota. Dakota? I don't know. North, no, North Dakota. Dakota's beautiful. Parts you, of it are beautiful. Okay. Yeah. It, Teddy Roosevelt National Park is okay, like yeah, one right. of the best places. Mm-hmm. And actually, North Dakota, North Dakota is the least visited. Well, I know that's the least visited national park. I think it's most people's 50th state that they haven't been Wait, to. Wait, excuse also. me. People are going to rip me a new asshole for saying this. It's Iowa that I'm thinking of, not North Dakota. Okay. Complete <laughs> opposite side of the country. More in the middle with Iowa than North Dakota. But no, North Dakota was beautiful because I remember I went through there and spent time in South Dakota. Um, but yeah, I think Iowa was just, I drove right through it. Yeah. But even well, then. Iowa has really nice people, but I can't really defend it the same way I can North Dakota. But. Think, but I'm from Ohio and I love the Midwest. So. See, I think even then the Midwest. Bring on the cornfields. Like, exactly. Like that whole lifestyle of like harvesting and, and you know, Agricultural, basically agriculture, yeah. like you're basically, you know, feeding the mouths of America. Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting to even photograph those people and go out with like the combines early morning oh, at yeah, sunrise cool. and photograph those. But um, mm. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, curious as we you know, start to, to wrap this up where do you know where your next journey is going to be or where you're going to be traveling next? I know you're in Montana now, but do you have plans on where you're going? Yeah, I think that probably, I mean, just Idaho mm. and that's kind of my next, um, next point that is kind of like the, the spot that I am like, okay, I'm not going to skip this state. And then after that, I'm staying pretty flexible. Mm-hmm. And Obviously, you have an incredible story, Sophie, that, you know, even sitting down for an hour and a half, it doesn't, it, it really Not is just time. a snippet Not of your time. life. Not enough time. Yeah. And obviously, your story is in more length in, in the 20-year war in our book. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, you, it sounds like you had kind of a, a, a harsh upbringing and then you went into the military, you had your career there, you climbed Mount Everest, you know, you're doing some incredible things. What would you give back to other veterans or what would you say to them who are transitioning? You know, maybe have their own, you know, struggles with trying to go back to the civilian workforce and all that. Yeah. You know, people reach out to me all the time about, you know, transitioning veterans a lot because just because I've, you know, done a few different things at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what a lot of people love to hear is like some kind of plan about how to get into consulting or how to get into business school or something. But Mm. Honestly, the best thing I've done since getting out of the military was just a few weeks ago, I went out into nature by myself for two weeks. Mm. And um, I was in Montana and I'd been planning this for a while. Um, You know, something had been calling me for a while to head out into like total solitude. I know I've been alone in my van for the most part for over a year, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like off cell phone reception, like really alone with my thoughts. And I think that's something a lot of vets just have never gotten to that point. And man, mm-hmm. that's carry so much trauma, like yeah. not only from things that we've participated in as part of being in the military, but like probably a lot of the reasons why people go into the military in the first place, like people like me. So I, you know, found a million excuses to not do something like this um, before I finally just did it. And the reason that I finally just did it was my insomnia was starting to give me headaches and I didn't want to be addicted to sleep aids for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I went out in the woods for two weeks to go back to all that childhood stuff I mentioned. I knew I was going to have to face it and I was dreading that. Um, but 
I knew I had to go heal that inner child. And I yeah. think a lot of us have that. So a lot of time has passed since I was 18. Um, and I've definitely created this whole adult life for myself that people might think is pretty charmed. But the honest truth is like, I still had this anger inside of me, mm-hmm. anger about like what had happened and like how, you know, there was never any real closure there. And so I think that darkness was what made, has made me gravitate towards all these stressful jobs and stressful hobbies, sometimes stressful relationships, um, you know, and by just going out there for two weeks and not having any distractions and being like, all right, whatever's going to come up is going to come up. I'm going to face these demons. And like, I'm here to like move forward and like get rid of this anger. And like, I don't know how to do that. Like Mm -hmm. at my normal, you know, in a normal week, I'm like, how do I deal with my anger? Hmm. Should I like, just like list turn up some really angry music and like go have a hard workout. Like, I think that's how vets, you know, and maybe that is for some people yeah. how it works out, but I needed, I needed to release the anger. I didn't need to like put like pour kerosene on it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so out there, I was just like, the things came up. I validated all the things and I watched these things like actually release. I mean, I watched them release, but I felt them release and I felt myself get so much lighter and like, yeah. For me, it was really important to go so deep in all my family lineage on both sides. Like, hmm. um, you know, I'm half Korean and half Caucasian. My Korean half, like I told you, I went to Korea and I couldn't really wrap my head around, you know, my own family's history there just because it looked so different mm-hmm. and was nothing like all these, you know, little stories that I'd heard before. But, um, you know, there's a horribly depressing history of Korea. Mm-hmm. There's like a word for Korean depression. It's called Han and it like, Hmm. translates to the ineffable sadness of being Korean. And it's from all these years of like oppression and, and like occupation and like unthinkable, unimaginable things that happened to the people there. And, and that's just my Korean side, right? Like on my Caucasian side, you know, there's, there's definitely some stories there. And there's a couple of my family members who are now deceased who wrote some memoirs. And I knew these family members and never heard these stories from them. Um, Wow. And I could never actually feel the full weight of what that was like for these people when, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm talking to my immediate family or when these people are alive. But when I'm reading these books, um, it's so different from how these stories have been told to me before, because before it was like when someone tells you this stuff and they're like traumatized, they're so detached from it. There's no storytelling to it. It's not actually it's like hard to grasp onto and feel the weight. And I totally understand why Like it's a trauma response. They don't want to attach to that narrative anymore to like mm-hmm. protect themselves, but it's like really tough to resonate with their audience. And then like, it's tough for me to really understand why, like I can't mm-hmm. logically explain why these things happen to me. And, you know, I have to stay angry until I can explain it. So yeah. by like actually connecting to all these people and stories who came before me, I could a- actually look at it logically. Like I can logically explain why I was dealt the cards I was dealt and why they were dealt the cards they were dealt. And I saw like, it actually got so much worse the further back I went, like it got Mm. better over time. And like, that was actually really beautiful pattern to witness. Like every generation, you know, rapidly improved a lot of things. As far as I could tell, like no one ever went, you know, no one ever backslid and made anything worse, especially around, you know, financial stability and just like stability of family units. And that, that goes for both sides. So like, Compared to pretty much everyone else in my lineage, I was living large in middle of nowhere, middle class, rural Ohio as a kid. Like my siblings and I might have been the first ones to ever enjoy that level of education and financial resources as a starting point. Mm-hmm. And for that, I'm so grateful. Like it's a major reason 
I have the luxury to do this work now to go to therapy, you know, to do all those things, all this next level healing. And now I just feel like it's my turn to build on this amazing foundation. Everyone who came before me laid out with real compassion and like that emotional component that they didn't have the luxury of even summoning within themselves because they were fighting so hard for resources. Like that's my forte. And it's always flowed out of me naturally. Like I'm an empath. And I have, you know, the opportunity to do all this inner work and break that cycle because of the privilege I was born into here in America with Mm -hmm. parents who made sure that, you know, I had those opportunities. So I had to like, I'm out there, you know, out in nature, I like dish that last crumb of whatever that victim mentality was from my childhood chapter. I'm not angry about anything in that anymore. Like, I'm honestly so grateful for it. And to like get to that point totally on your own, I think is really how it has to be in order to like fully heal. Like I see my childhood that whole thing I explained before, that's a gift Mm -hmm. because I got that gift to deal with and I faced it. I saved myself. I wasn't waiting for someone else to come around with an apology and do it for me or save me or anything like, and because of that, because I went through all that, like that's why I get to enjoy all these gifts now. Like, Mm -hmm. like I said, I'm not afraid of anything since age 18. You know, I could stay calm in firefights, go climb Everest, like go to North Korea for a week. Like I'm always trained and prepared for stuff. Like I have this capacity for a deep emotional space, but also a very logical brain. And I also have like this unlimited, seemingly unlimited horsepower, which, you know, I can apply to like rebellious things or I can apply to like positive things and mm-hmm. um, hopefully more positive. And, you know, I have this like inner authority and inner strength that um, that really helps me. Like Ram Dass talks about treating everyone you meet with compassion like they're God in drag, like even someone who treats you horribly. Yeah. Um, Cause like, you don't know what their version of being naked in the snow was. And you know, everyone's just projecting their pain on someone else. Like, mm. and when you see that and actually realize that, like someone was a jerk to me last night on a text message. And I was like, wow, this type of thing would usually like make me it hard for me to sleep tonight. But I'm like, this person is just going through their own stuff. This has yep. absolutely nothing to do with me. Like mm-hmm. you just see that's their pain. It's not my pain. I'm doing my work. Like mm-hmm. I can see your pain. I'm sorry you have that pain. And like, I'm also just not going to be a part of your pain. Like I'm going to step away from that. I can have compassion for you and your journey and your pain, but I'm going to keep moving forward. And, and, you know, maybe they'll see that and they'll want to feel that same lightness in their being and be inspired to do some work too, but they don't have to, if they Mm -hmm. don't want to, or like I said, some people just physically are blocked, emotionally (laughs) blocked and they can't. And, you know, it's all work that we have to do on our own. Like I can't save anyone else, even though I've tried and I'm, you know, we can't, we all have to save ourselves in that regard and do our own healing work. And my energy at this point is just going to go into hopefully being a light that can shine for others who want to move their lives in a positive direction. So yeah, other people's pain just doesn't control me anymore. And that's, that, that'll, that's not like an instant thing and I'm done, right? Like that's going to take real effort for the rest of my life. And, but that's where my energy is going to go. So I just think that's like finding that level of forgiveness for other people and really for yourself that's that's for you so you can walk through life lighter without any more self-sabotage or addictions and all these different things and i just see so many vets struggle with this and you know it's hard like you come out of the military and you have such a strong sense of like who you are when you're in the military my gosh like you have a you have an outfit you have this rank you have this title like you know exactly where you sit and then vets just get poured out into society and it's like Mm. 
who am I? Like, who even was I? Like when I was, cause you weren't really the army because before mm. you were the army, like you were just like a blank slate baby born into the world. Like you turned into that character for a short period of time, but like, you got to get back to who you are. And, yeah. and I don't know any better way to do that than to just go into nature. And it's so easy. It's hard, but it's easy. And it's like the most healing thing. So um, that's like really the best career advice I have, because I feel like a lot of people would not waste so much time running around doing stuff. That's not, aligned with who they are and not enjoying it. Um, I mean, for me, uh, you know, maybe I could have done a vision quest of sorts in my early twenties and my life would have looked really different. I've thought mm -hmm. about that, but I'm glad I didn't because I'm really grateful and I'm sure this meandering path was all meant to be. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, it's just, there's like different organizations too about veterans that, um, they'll, they'll take them out in nature and do these kind of trips like that. And I, I mean, there's a reason that stuff exists. Oh, it's, totally. I think, the most healing thing. Yeah, I think nature definitely is um, very th therapeutic for all of us. You know, it's where we come from. And it's incredibly insightful of what you were saying, because I think that a lot of people can learn from that. And whatever you're going through, you know, maybe you can afford to go into nature for a week or two, or, you know, or find that that release. But um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I got to say thank you for sharing your story. Mm -hmm. um, I know we've been wanting to have you on and it's incredibly enlightening to hear, you know, kind of start to finish. There's a lot that that comes with your story. And um, I think you've already gone on to, you know, knock down a lot of doors in your life and you're still so young. And it's just incredible to hear the wisdom and advice that you have for other veterans and, you know, teaching other people around you how to just be a better person and to you know, put your mind to everything that you're going through. So, you know, thank you, Sophie, for obviously being on the show and, and, and being, you know, open to sharing your story for other people to hear. Oh, well, thank you so much guys for having me. I was so honored that you even reached out and, um, this has actually been really healing for me to even like think back and, you mm -hmm. know, reflect on this kind of stuff mm -hmm. and process it. So yeah, I hope, I hope it helps someone out there. And, um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, safe travels. Uh, let's all stay in touch. Um, obviously if you're okay with it, we'll share your, you know, Instagram handles or social media. If people want to follow along on your travels, um, other sure than that, thing. I know we're looking forward to sending you a book that you're part of, and, uh, we're looking forward to, you know, continuing to share more of those short term short term stories of people that were in it. And, um, we'll talk to you here again soon. Awesome. Can't wait to see the book. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.